All right, guys, what's going on? Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we've got Megan Bryanton. Uh, so first off, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be discussing assessing powerlifters' movement strategies. Uh, Megan, why don't you just intro yourself a little bit, tell the listeners about who you are and kind of what you've been doing. Okay, um, so my business is Kinetic Advantage Consulting, and um, my, my background that led me to starting it was essentially I was a powerlifter for many years. I competed equipped and unequipped. Um, I went to grad school for many, many years because of that and because I wanted to get stronger. And then eventually my dreams of becoming a university professor um, have not happened yet. So I had to start a little bit of a side hustle. And then eventually this side hustle called Kinetic Advantage Consulting turned into my, my dream job. I love what I'm doing. So I've left academia because of it. Um, it's another way that I've learned to educate people on you know, what I'm passionate about with lifting and biomechanics of what I studied for many, many years. And this is just another um, example of the, the ways I get to tell people about all the information that's stored up in my brain that I'm trying to get out to everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, it's, it's pretty cool too, because you're not necessarily constrained by a specific model based on whatever educational institution you're in. You can kind of just promote whatever type of content that you want or that interests you. So that's great. You talk a lot about assessing movement strategies for your athletes. Um, can you kind of explain what a lifter's movement strategy is? Like, what do you mean by that? So for many years of my, my research, um, what I did was I started off just wanting to understand how muscles were contributing during the squat. The squat was my lift that I sucked at the most, and that's why I wanted to research it the most. And that eventually evolved into my PhD thesis where I looked at movement strategies. And what really, uh, what made me realize, you know, the, the big aha moment was that a lot of the time our movement strategy is based on our strengths and our weaknesses. So for example, I studied with older adults as well as athletic populations. And it was, we could always predict the movement strategy or their ability to, for example, sustain reps based on which muscle group is working a lot harder. So it's not even just like a mechanical constraint that, you know, I'm not strong enough, so this will happen. It's that the, the central nervous system wants to do its easiest and it wants to you know, redistribute loading demands. So it'll start recruiting these muscles uh, to help out the primary movers. And uh, even though I looked at the sit to stand, it, it started really, you know, clicking to me during my studies, like, oh, like this makes sense with my squad as well. And I was my own guinea pig for many, many years. But basically what I've done is I've taken that um, compensation strategies that I, I researched for so many years and I'm applying it to, to squatting. And so when it comes to looking at the movement strategies, what I'm looking at is how you're positioning your body with respect to the ground um, during, for example, like a, a unfatigued rep. And so what that's going to tell me is how much you're really loading up different muscle groups. And then, you know, we can really preferentially decide, okay, I want to squat this way. So I'm going to do that. But what happens when load is increased um, your body likes to do what's easiest and it'll fight against what maybe you want to do. And that's a, a strategy in order to more evenly redistribute the loading demands, get muscles that are you know, less active or stronger to help out. 
So if we're really fatiguing one muscle, like during a front squat, then our body's going to be like, okay, you know, like let's try to get other muscles to help out. And so we will compensate. And that compensation, that shifting loading demands will change our movement strategy. So our technique. So the, the forces that we are producing at our joint will depict our movement strategies and uh, the te technique that I'm looking at with my assessments. No, that makes sense. And it's interesting that you say that because a lot of the times a coach or an athlete might say, oh, you know what, they just missed the rep because they misgrooved it a little bit. But a lot of the times it's the fact that you misgrooved is almost because you were a little too weak to maintain that position, which threw you out of position. And then you were just too weak at, after that because your mechanics were just, I mean, less than optimal, let's say. So yeah, misgrooving is a term that, you know, was really reinforced with equipped lifting. Like if you, if you hit the hole a little differently or, you know, you touch differently with what you're supposed to um, in your shirt, try to get the stretch out of the suit. Um, but with powerlifting, it's like, okay, maybe I'm really trying to stay upright. And be, maybe because you tried so hard to stay upright that you ended up fighting against the mechanical advantages you could have had by just changing your form a little bit. And so I really like to say that like a lifter has bad technique. It is just what their body tries to do. It is their movement strategy in order to achieve the goal of the task, which is staying upright. And it's a kind of like a, you know, it's a pretty simplistic way of putting it, but it just, it explains so many different situations. Like you said, like the misgrooving, it's really maybe because you had put your body segments in a position that, you know, the, the loading demands that muscle just couldn't handle it. And so as a result, you failed to lift the other, the other side of it would have been, okay, maybe if I wasn't strong enough to be like that, I probably maybe like would have collapsed forward a little bit. Um, my back might have, you know, taken up some more of the loading demands. I might have leaned forward more, but we then usually associate that with like ugly technique or bad technique. So that's why I, I really like, rarely like to say that I do like I critique people's technique. It's more so I just assess it and tell them why that they're moving the way they do. It's it it takes away the technique shaming out of it too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, actually, when you see people go to the internet uh, about these things, like people will knock on Pete Rubish because his back is a little round or Lane Norton because he folds forward pretty far when he, when he does a deep squat. But at the end of the day, it's like, these guys are some of the best in the world. And, and you're telling me that, you know, as an armchair professor, you're going to, you know, you're going to break down their squat and you've got the answer. I, I, I don't know. I just think that requires a certain level of arrogance that I'm not really willing to, to sort of venture into. So when it comes to lifting, I'm sure you see a lot of different, um, I guess, technical execution. So what are some of the things that you see in this? We'll start with the squat since it seems to be your favorite. When you look at someone's squat, right? There's a couple different things that can happen. Knees coming in is definitely a common thing that people see. Hips shooting up and the knees shooting back. Um, or just staying super vertical, almost like an Olympic weightlifter style squat. So what's going on in those three different uh, variations of the squat? And um, what are some of the things that I guess you'd focus on if maybe you saw a weakness? And what would that weakness look like? For sure. Uh, so I, I, I guess I'll categorize it as like extremes, right? Because there are continuums of each one and some lifters will actually represent, like they'll, they'll present with more than one type of strategy. 
But if we have, we have the, the very upright torso squatter who the only way you can achieve an upright torso in squatting is if you keep your knees forward a lot during the movement. And the more forward the knees are, the harder the quads have to work. So the lifter that especially say um, you increase load and they can still stay upright and they still get depth really well. Um, that's because they have sufficient knee extensor strength in order to do it. So they have the strength in the bottom of the squat, they come up and they'll kind of fail maybe in the top half of the lift. And you'll look at them and they'll be like, well, that looked really easy. Why did they fail up there? And that is because from parallel to below, the knee extensors are that make it or break a muscle group. Their loading demands spike up significantly. And then from parallel and above, it's a sliding scale where then the hip extensors start taking over more as that major contributor. So in that position, if they look like they're a really pretty squatter and they're staying super upright and then they still fail in the top half of the lift and everyone's like, you know, why? Like that looked good. They're kind of that, like you call them the all or none lifter. They are the ones where it's just that their hip extensors weren't able to handle that higher position. They, they try to push their knees forward even more. Some of them will do like a, a double knee bend because they're trying to get their quads back in the game at the top half of the lift. And so they're that, that person where their knee extensors are that, you know, the, their strength. It's, I don't like to say that their glutes or their hips are weak. It's just that their, their knee extensors or quads are relatively stronger for the heavy load because, you know, all powerlifters, you're going to be strong. We're, like compared to the general population. So ish, I, I speak of it as in like relative strength. So the knee extensors are relatively stronger. Another example would be if the hips are shooting back and I call it posterior hip drift. Um, and some people will get mixed up because there's, there's kind of two scenarios where your hips might shoot back out of the hole. Um, there's one where the hips shoot back, the torso collapses forward and the knees shoot back. So in that situation, what you've done is you've rapidly gotten the lower leg more upright. So you've rapidly reduced the loading demands for the quads in those lower positions. And then you've pushed your hips back. And so you've immediately transferred loading demands from the knee to the hip. So this is a strategy we see a lot in like older adults. And with aging, we get this selective atrophy of our knee extensors or quads. So um, the good morning squat, that is our... Um, hip extensor dominant people. They're trying to transfer loading from their knee to the hip because their knee extensors can't handle the loading requirements. The hips try to take up the work and then sometimes we'll get even further collapsing forward and that's where the, the lower back. So it's like this um, chain of events that the knee fails first or it's approaching failure. We try to shift it to the hip. The hip can't eventually gets to the point where they can't do all the work and then it shifts to the lower back. So that is the good morning hips shooting back. Another situation where the hips might also come back is what I call whole body posture shift. So in this situation, the lifter's hips will shoot back and the lower leg will come upright quicker, but they don't collapse forward. So the bar will actually drift backwards with the hips. And that tells me that their, their weight is shifting towards their heels. And when your weight shifts towards your heels, that's telling me that they're really using their hamstrings because you immediately put tension in your hamstrings um, when your weight shifts towards your heels. And so what they're doing is they're trying to transfer energy from the knee to the hip via the hamstrings. So they're not actually increasing the loading demands for the hip extensors because the actual distance between the hip and where the barbell is hasn't changed. It's just they're trying to almost use their hamstrings like an elastic band. And 
we we hear that you know the hamstrings you know they are they are a hip extensor and there are some really old school thoughts about you know we should really use the hamstrings more than the quads as like uh in this in the squat and that the hamstrings are, are more important than the quads and i'm like well you know you need to extend the knee how can you neglect the quads during the squat there's always going to be minimum joint loading requirements for each muscle group when you put tension in the hamstrings and you allow your weight to shift towards your heels, it, yeah, it's, it's great because you're transferring energy from the knee to the hip. So you ha- if you have really strong quads, you're getting that tension and you're like transferring it up like an elastic band. So you're helping the hip extensors out. But that means that the quads have to work even harder to counteract the knee flexor forces going on from the hamstring. So it's actually highly inefficient. And the lifters that come to me with really bad knee pain, and this is specific to powerlifters, um, it's usually because they, they're using so much hamstrings, their glutes are lazy and they're, or they're, they're not strong enough. And they had this whole body posture shift. And that means their quads with them having to work even harder is they chronically have tension on their patellar tendon. That's more than what they really need to be doing. And then they'll be like, okay, well, I'm just going to push my hips back even more. Cause then I don't have to use my quads as much. And then they, they go down this vicious cycle of, okay, then their hamstrings get stronger, then the tension gets put back on the quads. And so the, the whole body posture shift, it, it helps you get the job done, but it's one of those ones that I kind of put a red flag up um, because I see it happen with the knee pain so much in lifters. So with them, I call them a hamstring dominant hip extensor strategy. So with the good morning up, you ha- you're, you know, you're using your glutes well, um, you know, transferring load into your lower back as well. But if you are shifting the weight whole body shift towards your heels, then you're more of a hamstring dominant hip extensor. You're using them a lot because your glutes can't do the job. The, the last situation is if you have a lot of knee valgus. So knee valgus is a consequence of overuse of the adductor magnus as a hip extensor. So the adductor magnus, the posture head of it, it inserts right where the hamstrings are. So we call it the hamstring portion. Um, so in the similar situation with the hamstring dominant strategy, if we're using too much of a muscle, it's other actions have to be present. For the hamstrings, it has to be knee flexion. For the adductor magnus, like its name, it's thigh adduction and internal rotation. So um, it's not knee valgus during in powerlifters. And again, I say specific to powerlifters. Knee valgus in powerlifters is not because of weak glute needs. It's because they're using their adductor magnus so much um, because their glutes can't do the job. So uh, the adductor magnus is actually the primary hip extensor in deeper hip flexion. That's what the research is showing right now. So considering that, you know, knee valgus is fine. The only pro- thing that it can, you know, cause some problems is if you're using it too much, just like the hamstrings and the glutes are like, Meh, like I don't have to do the work. I'll just get these guys to help out so much. And then you're reinforcing that tension. You're reinforcing that muscle group and it gets stronger and stronger. And then you get to the point where, you know, the knee valgus is so much that like you're so in like inwards like this with your knees that you trying to produce that leg drive down on the ground, it's just wasting energy because it's being directed like this. And we always want our leg drive to be directed straight down so that the world pushes back at us and we get those great round ground reaction forces and we, we help move the bar upwards. That's the intended direction. So it, again, it, the, the hamstring dominant hip extensor strategy, the adductor magnus dominant hip extensor strategy, it's because the glutes aren't, you know, up to par. It's not that they're weak. It's probably just because they can't handle the loading demands for that barbell load and the quads can. 
Okay. So there's the upright squatter. There's the, the, the good morning squatter. There's the whole body posture shift. And then there's the knee valgus. Our, our weak glutes are the, the upright squatter, the, the hamstring dominant one, and the, the adductor magnus one. And so in those situations, we want to be building the, the glutes up. And it's usually, I say, always the glutes because they're supposed to be our primary powerhouse for hip extension. And we always want to make sure that they're nice and strong, not just so we can lift more load, but because they're really important in controlling our pelvis. So if we're using these muscles that aren't supposed to do the job, that's where usually the, the injury problems come in, whether it's knee pain or, you know, back pain because you're not controlling your pelvis very well. So in that situation, when we want to be training our hip extensors, specifically our glutes, we need to choose accessory movements that prioritize load over range of motion. So heavier loads to partial range of motion. It doesn't mean like go like a hundred percent of your one RM and do pin squats to a partial. It's like, no, it's just that you can typically lift heavier loads to a partial range of motion. So in that aspect, you are, you're loading up and training the hip extensors in that position where they are that make it or break it muscular, that major contributor. So it's the best way to target the muscle. Um, what you want to be making sure that whenever you're doing these exercises is that you are purposely trying to provide a mechanical disadvantage for the hips because that super upright squatter, if you get them to go do, you know, box squats or pin squats or even block pulls when we get to the deadlift, they're going to try to do it upright and stay super upright and just pop it up their quads. So the accessory movements, the purpose is to provide a mechanical disadvantage for a relatively weaker muscle group. Our competition style is what we select to have a mechanical advantage for our relatively stronger muscle group. So with the, the hip extensors, you really need to make sure that you're purposely pushing your hips back more. And that could mean getting comfortable in a more lean forward position. It's safe to lean forward, provided the pelvis and the torso are in line. Um, the opposite with our good morning strategy squatters, their, their knee extensors are the weakest muscle group. And the best way in order to target the knee extensors with their accessory movements is select exercises that prioritize range of motion overload. So going very, very deep, like, and when I say deep, I mean like ass to grass to a partial range of motion, or sorry, a full range of motion. So um, I always get my lifters to start off if, it, if it's a really pronounced good morning strategy, um, I get them to start off with just basically Frankenstein squats with the bar. And so that's a modified front squat with your arms straight out in front. Um, so that means that they're going very, very deep, ass grass, the light load, and you can get the same, if not better training stimulus by going very deep, ass to grass, the light load than you would to a partial range of motion with a heavier load. The thing is with the heavier load, you're more likely to try and compensate and transfer loading. But when you go deep, we know that the glutes aren't, aren't able to, you know, produce a lot of hip extensor torque in deep positions. The deeper and deeper you go, the more and more forward you have to push your quads. So it, it really is like you're selectively using the quads to, to a greater extent, very, very deep. You have this upright torso because the bar position, it forces you to use your quads. So the deep astagrass squats, it's like you're, you're isolating. It's the best way to kind of isolate a muscle group without actually, you know, isolating, doing an isolation exercise but it'll actually transfer you to your, to your competition style. So like you could go do a bunch of, you know, knee extensions on a knee extension machine, but we know from the research that that 
single joint stuff doesn't transfer over as effectively to multi-joint tasks. So the very deep Ostergras light squats, and I mean light because if you go too heavy, you're going to cut depth. If you cut depth, you're not getting the training benefit that you could be. So it's inefficient. So the very deep Ostergras, it's like you're, you're isolating the quads to a certain extent and it transfers over really well to competition style squat. And, you know, people are like, well, I don't squat that deep in competition. But then they have this problem where they start cutting depth more and more as the load gets heavier. It's like, well, is, that is the clear cut sign that your quads aren't able to handle it. So let's isolate them and get them stronger, but not overdo it, but per- make sure that we're doing it in a certain way that it's forcing the quads to do the job. So that goes back to that. We need to make sure our accessory movements are providing that mechanical disadvantage for the weak muscle group. And that means fighting against what your body naturally wants to do. And it's, and it's hard. And then for our competition style, choosing the one that takes advantage of our strengths. <laughs> so I, I actually wanted to touch on something because I get a lot of questions about this whenever I talk about some of the stuff that you mentioned, uh, specifically about the hamstrings um, and how your, your knee extensors need to generate a lot more torque if your hamstrings, if you have that backward shift uh, strategy that you mentioned earlier. So, um, yeah, the hamstrings being a biarticular muscle, they, they extend the hip, they flex the knee. And so if you're activating them a lot more, what ends up happening, or if you're using them a lot more in the lift, yes, they're helping with hip extension, but then they're also negating to some degree knee extension. So you, any benefit, well, I don't want to say any benefit, but some of the benefit that you're getting from is, is also actually being detracted because, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why the quads end up having to work a little bit harder. So I just wanted to make sure that was clear because literally every time I talk about the hamstrings not being super active, everyone always tells me this and they're kind of <laughs> uncertain about that one point. And the fact that it is a biarticular muscle is a really, really important point or else, yeah, it would just help blow up your squat. Um, yeah. It, it, it's something that um, we, I modeled in one of my research studies because it does, so the, the internal moment arm of the hamstrings, it does change based on where you are in the squat. So if it, the internal moment arm is longer versus shorter, it'll change the actual knee flexor torque that's being, that's opposing the quads. And so people always like, well, like Lombard's paradox says, you know, this, it, you know, it ends up working out and it's like, well, okay, we modeled it and it, doesn't work out as nicely so it's a strategy you can use if you have really nice strong quads but um, it, it is inefficient so it's just something that I, I tell to my lifters it it makes more sense to really focus on getting the quad the the glutes stronger so that you can actually use your quads to their full potential rather than just getting your hamstrings stronger because then your quads have to work harder you know maybe it's not it's not like equivalent that how much the hamstrings are working at the hip that it's equivalent at the knee but it is more and if your goal is to move the most amount of weight possible you want to be as efficient as you can with your movement strategy so that's big nice strong glutes nice strong quads balance and trying to reserve recruiting those synergist muscles like the hamstrings and the adductor magnus for when you really need them at like heavy heavy loads if you're always recruiting them at like 60 or 70% of your 1RM, um, you're probably, you know, going to go down that downward spiral of, you know, hamstrings getting stronger. Well, then the quads have to work harder. The quads have to get stronger. And then you don't use your glutes. So your hamstrings get stronger and it just keeps down and down. And so many lifters, they just, okay, well, I'll just push my hips back more. And that, yes, that immediately will 
take away their pain for the short term with knee pain if they're having the ham- overuse of the hamstrings causing knee pain. But eventually, you know, their hamstrings end up getting stronger and then the pain always comes back. And then they get to the point where like, well, I can't push my hips back anymore. And now the knee pain just doesn't go away at all and they have to take time off. And it comes down to just figuring out, well, why? And with powerlifters, I would say like, and I don't like giving definitives, but probably 90% of the lifters that come to me with that type of knee pain, it's because of the hamstrings. When talking about the bench press, there's a lot of different, well, I guess there's kind of two opposing camps. There's the first camp, which is bar goes straight up, straight down the whole time. Mm-hmm. The other one is, um, well, I guess broken up into three, you know, the more beginner one presses the bar up and then back kind of, you know, more advanced people um, tend to shift the bar back over their shoulders and press up. And I've seen a lot of arguing on both and, to be honest, I, I actually do think both are a viable strategy, but I, I think that the straight up and down bar path, the only time I've ever seen it worked is in really, really jacked athletes <laughs> who get up onto their traps, right? So okay. they, like, they, they end up shortening the distance. So like, there's way less horizontal displacement of the bar went from like the top position to the low position. And I just think it's because they're so freaking huge that I don't know. Like it, when you look from the side, it looks like it's just going straight up and down. But for for like the rest of us mortals, I t- <laughs> I tend to think that uh, that um, you know having that kind of leg drive to pop the bar over your shoulders tends to be a little bit better. Um, but I was wondering if you could kind of give a breakdown of of the bench press and maybe why the different strategies happen. Um, so kind of the same way that you were talking about if you have really strong quads, what the movement strategy there might look like. So the different, I guess the different variations of, of technical execution that you commonly see in the mm-hmm. bench press. Yeah. So just to comment on the, the up and down, um, I see that also in female lifters that have like crazy arches because all they have to do is like dink, dink, right? Like, so yeah. it's just, they yeah. only, yeah, yeah they, that's a good point. That's a good all point. they're doing is like elbow extension basically because they've arched so much. And that's it, that brings me to how the muscles contribute. So what arching does is it reduces the range of motion that the pecs have to work in. So same thing like the squat, you can think of it as a sliding scale where like the first few inches up, it's the chest. The chest, the pectoralis major is that make it or break a muscle group. And then it's a sliding scale where the further, further up we get, the triceps start taking over more and more. So that top half of the lift, like if you're doing just basically like a board press range of motion, it's you're targeting the triceps. Um, so it, with the the different types of compensation strategies, um, I'll I'll give the two extremes. So uh, the the lift that that you mentioned, the lifter that you know pushes straight up or even slightly away from them, and then back, and then the lifter that pushes back towards their face and up. So the the J path, the the second example, the the back and then up. Um, it's, it's demonstrated by some of the top lifters in the world. And, you know, we, we kept seeing this, but it was a matter of like really understanding why, and it links back to what you're discussing about those crazy athletes, like high level athletes, especially powerlifters, they have really strong pecs and where in movement in the squat, we want a balance between the knee and the hip. The, the bench, it's actually good to be on the side of favoring more chest dominant because it allows us to get that back and up bar pass. So whenever they, they press off their chest, what will happen is, yes, they get leg drive and assist like 
the momentum off their chest, but then their elbows will kind of drift a little bit to the, the side. And I, I do um, uh, Instagram TV chat about this with Jen Thompson's bench press because so many people were always saying like, don't let your elbows go to the side. Don't do that. And she's just like, well, like I'm, you know, she's one of the top benchers in the world and people are telling her, don't do that. It's ridiculous. And so yeah, I broke it down more than most men. So yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like you got to be like, ah, just let her do her thing. I think she knows what she's doing. <laughs> exactly. And the same, that was the same thing for assessing, um, Bryce's squat like they're saying like don't squat high bar don't squat high bar he's like one of the top squatters in the world like why oh, wouldn't Lewis? yeah because he yeah, yeah he's, he's got strong he's got strong quads he, like it allows him to take advantage of his strengths so allowing that little bit of a back and then a bar path what it does is it rapidly reduces the distance between the shoulder and the bar so it reduces the the loading demands for like the the anterior deltoid it's a small muscle unless you know you got big shoulders and strong, but like most people, it's not their, their strength, the chest is or the triceps. So it rapidly reduces that distance between the shoulder and the bar. And it, it, it helps in you get through any type of sticking point. So when the triceps are taking over at that sliding scale position, by the time they start taking over, you've put them in a really mechanically advantageous position to just pop it up and finish off the lift. So being able to use your chest effectively off the chest, it sets you up for success at the top half of the lift. But in order to do that, you need that sufficient chest strength to allow the bar to drift towards your face. Um, so if you don't, then what will happen is you'll try to use triceps to assist the chest off the chest right? And you can think about it if you're like in this position here and you did elbow extension, which is our triceps and our, our triceps don't even just do elbow extension. They also do shoulder extension, right? So if you use too much triceps off your chest, what's going to happen? It, it, the bar is going to drift away from you. So that is where novice lifters, what we see is they'll, they'll push straight up or even sometimes away from them. And then they get to the point where the triceps now are like that only muscle that can do the job they've used too much triceps off the chest to help the chest out because it's weak. And then they get to this position here. They're like, Oh shit. And then they get the sticking point and it's not until they get that bar back towards their face that they can pop it up if it's a really heavy loading competition. So, you know, you hear a lot of coaches screaming, you know, back, 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 push back. And when they're in that sticking point and what they're doing is they're just putting their triceps in a more mechanically advantageous position to finish up. So when you push too straight up off your chest, it's good if your triceps are your relatively stronger muscle group, but sometimes it can set you up for failure at the top half of the lift. So with those two extremes, if I see a lifter and the low gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and they're pushing more and more back towards their face, or they're able to maintain that J path really well, then that's a sign that they have really strong chest muscles. If they're, maybe they do the J path really well at a light load, but then it start, they start pushing away and away from them more and more, then that's a sign that their chest can't do that job in that position and they're trying to use their triceps more. So again, it's just the, the strategy that your body needs to do to get that bar up. The, the difference with the squat is that, like I said, it is favorable to have stronger chest muscle than your triceps or being relatively stronger with your chest because it allows you to get that efficient bar path and needed. there's virtually no sticking point for those lifters that can do that. Uh, if they have any type of sticking points because they're like elbows are almost locked out and they're just trying to like finish off that last couple of inches. But with those situations, 
I always think that chest work is important. Um, if they're extremely chest dominant, though, then in that situation, I would get them to do close grip um, to us to start off because we want we we don't want the muscle to be doing all the work. We want the triceps to help out so that you know you're not taxing the chest. Um, but we just want the chest to be able to do what they can do. But the, having the triceps help out a little bit it is really good. Um, also on the way down, you can think if you're a really chest dominant lifter and you bring the bar straight down and you keep it over your face the whole time, you're not even allowing your triceps to help out. So yes, you are, you know, taking advantage of your stronger muscle group, but you're, you're taxing the muscle before it even is able to do the, the movement and press the bar. So it, I will actually instruct a lifter to just kind of allow, tuck their elbows a little bit more. Don't bring it straight down, allow the triceps to help out on the way down. And then you can do that press elbows drift out to the side and push up at the top. If they are a really like strong chest with someone who's very tricep dominant and they want to use their triceps too much. And you see them pushing away or pushing straight up off the chest then or they're or like they fail immediately off the chest that's where their sticking point is then we will do movements that you know strengthen the the, the pecs and strengthen the pecs it's just like the knee extensors by prioritizing range of motion overload so um, if they are that arched lifter the female lifters that like to you know bend their spines i was one of them and i i realized i got to the point where it's like my triceps were really strong especially because i competed equipped but I always failed on my chest. Like the load before was fine. And then I add maybe like two and a half kilos and then it just doesn't even budge off my chest because I got to the point where my chest couldn't even handle like the minimum requirements it needed to do for a barbell load. So you, you need to take things back, allow yourself to build that chest strength up in a more flat back position. So that's where the increase in the range of motion. Um, you could do feet up bench because it takes away leg drive. So it forces the chest to have to work even harder. Um, I really like floor press with an extreme elbow flare. If you are in like a, you know, you keep having a sticking point in the mid range of motion. So it'll get the chest stronger in the mid range motion. You can load it up a little bit more. Um, so it's that same principle as knee sensors prioritize range of motion overload, full range of motion and and light for the triceps if you know they're if we want to target them more it's about loading them up in that range of motion where they're the make it break it muscle group so you know with um, board press um, chains bands stuff like that just like the hip extensors so it, it is that rule of thumb that you know gets carried over between all three of the lifts um, so it's about looking at you know what they're doing as load is increasing are they pushing away are they pushing towards their face more identify whether the chest is stronger or weaker if it's you know if they're pretty balanced and it doesn't seem to change they're pretty consistent and it's like okay well we could be doing either or but i still prefer to get my lifters to you know build their chest chest strength up because it seems like even in the research that chest muscle mass and chest strength is a major predictor of bench press performance. So you want to err on the side of that and really make sure that you're devoting time to that uh, chest strength, especially in powerlifting, because everyone try well, most people try to arch if they can to get that mechanical advantage, which is absolutely perfect because that's the point of powerlifting, move the most amount of weight possible, but you need to get those, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable for your accessory movements. One thing that you mentioned earlier that I thought was interesting was um, 
playing into your strengths as far as whether you have really strong triceps or really strong pecs or whatever. And it ends up being potentially a good strategy in the short term. But if, if you're looking at an athlete's development, let's say over five or 10 years, it can really set you back if your triceps are so strong, but then your, your pecs are so weak that, you know, it's going to take a long time to put on the additional muscle to, to really catch up. So I like how you kind of mentioned that as, as like, not only just from a, like an immediate assessment, but also from a long-term developmental standpoint, it could really hamper you down the road, even though right now it, it's, it's something that is working for you. Um, I, th I think it's just something that maybe hasn't been exposed yet. Um, yeah. So like so that. A strategy that I, so like if someone has really strong triceps, um, like a female lifter, for example, that arches a lot, you know, short-term them really loading up the triceps and peaking that muscle group does really well short-term. And it's a, it's a great strategy to use right before you're about to compete. Um, but female lifters, we, we have that problem where we don't develop the chest strength as much as, as quickly as males do. And I think part of that is not just like a physiological thing or, you know, a sex thing. It is that we have, we're flexible, we're more flexible, we can arch like crazy. And so we're just always constantly neglecting our chest and, and preferentially training our triceps. But like I said, you're going to have the minimum joint torque requirements at the shoulder in order to move that arm. The bench press isn't an elbow extension. It's, it's, there's movement going on at the shoulder as well. So you can't just train one muscle group and hope that you're going to, you know, continuously progress. And I'd say a lot of the time, you know, these lifters will have coaches that are math whizzes and they can do amazing programs. But if you're always, you know, just doing your main lifts, you're always reinforcing your strengths and you're always neglecting your weaknesses. Any, these lifters will just get to the point where they plateau and they don't understand why they'll, you know, switch coaches and the coach, you know, again, they, they could have a really amazing program, but if the, the weaknesses aren't being addressed, it doesn't go anywhere. And so those are the lifters where they're either plateauing for a while or they just keep cycling through different coaches and they don't really, you know, the, the coaches programming doesn't get like you know, brought to fr fr that fruition. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and, and to be honest, I am like kind of a perfect example. Like you, you would hate me as a lifter because I went on so long um, just having horrendous, like a horrendous discrepancy between my quads and my hips. Like, <laughs> I, I could front squat like four something when I was like 185 pounds and I couldn't back squat like 390 because I was an Olympic weightlifter oh, okay. previously, yeah. right? Yeah. And so we never really did heavy squats. Like I would do heavier clean and jerks than we would ever do squats. Mm -hmm. And so that just kind of carried over when I transferred to powerlifting. I was just always squatting and my, my quads got so much stronger and, uh, to the point where when I decided I was going to switch from conventional deadlift to sumo, I hit like a, a almost a hundred pound PR. Like that was like my first, first 600 pound deadlift the first time I did it. And I didn't even know I was like, did I do it right? And, uh, and that's because you're playing to your strengths. Yeah, exactly. But, but then because I did that and because I wasn't addressing any of those issues like directly by, you know, incorporating block pulls and maybe some high pin good mornings or, you know, things along those lines, my quads got progressively stronger and stronger and stronger. My hips got weaker. So that was always the rate limiting factor for my progress. And it wasn't until like maybe six or seven months ago 
um, or let's just say 2020, where I actually started to address those things. And all of a sudden I start getting like these newbie gains and, and it's literally just because strength expression was really limited. So mm -hmm. my quads, even though they were strong enough to let's say generate, I don't know, 650 pounds, uh, like to lift 650 pounds, I was only able to lift like 600 pounds because my hips wouldn't actually allow me to, to maintain yeah. that stability or in that position. Um, it's so, like a bottleneck, right? So exactly, it's yeah. all going to be that, that limiting muscle group and you can compensate so much, but if you can't hit those minimum joint loading demands at that joint, and you're probably that, that pretty all or none lifter where you just kind of looked really nice and like, why did that fail? Cause you were like, yeah. super upright. <laughs> like you didn't even, you didn't even look like it grinded. So I was the, yeah. the complete opposite of you. I, my first competition, um, like I started competing like in July and then I did nationals equipped like, or I started powerlifting maybe in like a, the summer. And then I did CPU nationals equipped like within four months. So I was like right into equipped lifting right away. And I didn't even have like a solid foundation. It was more like, I was like training with these guys and I was like, Oh, I'm just going to do what they do. And so I, I got really strong equipped, but the, the suits, it assists you in the bottom of the squat. Right. So I was always just lifting heavy loads at the top and relying on the suit in the bottom. So I got to the point where like I was a 52 kilo lifter and I could, you know, squat equipped like 150 kilos, but I could barely squat 80 kilos raw. Cause I just, I either had to cut depth. I couldn't get depth and just, and it wasn't until my, I did my research my, my for my master's thesis that I was like, Oh, it's because the knee extensors have to do all that work in the bottom and they just weren't strong enough. And I was relying on my hip extensors and reinforcing their strength more and more and more. And then I got to the point where my quads were, my quads are really, really weak. I couldn't even do like an upright lunge without collapsing over, but I was squatting like 150 kilos in, in a suit. So it was like ridiculous. And then I ended up, you know, injuring my back because of it, because I was always just relying on those, those strengths and trying to transfer loading to the hip once I switched to, to raw lifting. And I, you know, I well, had to take time off and you know, after the injury, but it was that really that wake up call being like, Hey, I need to start understanding what the hell is going on with my body. So it was selfish purposes for my research, but now I don't even really like compete or like, I'm trying to think of the last time I squatted because we moved, uh, we sold our house in August and I haven't lifted probably since July. So, uh, right now it's just, now it's about making others strong and hopefully making it so that they don't make the mistakes I did. I, I learned from these mistakes and I want everyone out there to, to understand these compensation strategies and, and understand the importance of, you know, knee extensor strength so that you're not putting so much on your back because it's, you know, one of those leading reasons with back injury. So it's like, yes, you can lean forward, but if you put, you know, 80% of the loading demands on your back, yes, you're going to get injured. So it, the only way you're going to prevent that is getting the, the hip strong and getting those quads strong and achieving that balance. Right. And so just for anyone listening, like one really simple and effective strategy that you can use as well. Um, and this is what I do with a lot of my athletes is the further out you are from your actual competition, that's where you can incorporate a lot of the variations like Megan was talking about. Right. So um, whether it's like feet up bench press, if you are one of the rare lucky individuals who happens to have a camber bar for the bench press, yeah. you can use those. You can do dumbbells with like a really, really deep stretch. 
a lot of additional variations you can use far out from your your meat because it's not really going to affect your your actual technical execution once you know you get to the to, to the actual like peaking phase. Mm -hmm. So that's a really great strategy to use. And then even during your strength block, let's say you have squats, maybe you do squats and then after squats, you maybe do some front squats, just a little bit of, you know, variation to, to kind of finish off as well to, to hit your quads, or it could be whatever else is your weakness. I'm assuming that, you know, quads is a weakness in those examples that I was giving. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's really simplistic and it's really, really effective, but you need to make sure that you are actually working on your, your um your weaknesses during those times you don't always want to be mimicking the competition movements right you don't always want to be doing everything the same um and if you do actually the likelihood of you getting like overuse injuries is is actually quite a bit higher so mm -hmm. utilizing variation not only is going to be better from a developmental standpoint but also from an injury uh, prevention standpoint so um, I did want to get your feedback actually on the lats, the involvement of the lats in the bench press. This is something I know a lot of people talk about. There's a couple different points of contention. The lats are, are you know, the lats are your benching muscles. I, I always hear people say that, and I do definitely think the lats are super important. Um, but I wanted your feedback on, you know, what their actual role was within the bench press and how they actually assist in executing the, the lift. Yeah. Um, so I think that it was another, I call it ghost of equipped lifting path, equipped lifting's past <laughs> because the lots were extremely important. Like doing inverted rows are so important if you're equipped benching. Um, so I know what people out there aren't just interested in raw lifting, they're interested in equipped. So the lots are so important to bring that. Not anyone who listens to this podcast. <laughs> No, I'm just joking. Anyways. <laughs> it's okay. The, yeah, so the lots you know, are really, really important with equipped bench, and it, it did get perpetuated um, a little bit more and giving them more value than they should be, kind of like the hamstrings and sitting back. But it, it's just you got to think about common sense. It's a rowing muscle, right? And you're doing a pressing movement. So if you're using too much lats, then you're opposing the direction that you want to be pushing the bar. But they are important for stabilizing the shoulder girdle, like extremely. They're your biggest muscle of your back, like what, yeah, the biggest muscle. So they're going to provide you a solid foundation for stabilizing. So they do have an important role there um, and helping with control. So if you're someone that they – they're, have, they're, they're really wobbly and they're inconsistent on the way down, then maybe, you know, engaging your lats during the bench press is good because we can improve our force control and we can improve our, our movement, you know, I guess, accuracy with more joint rigidity. So for example, I always go back to my elderly adults, but they're like the perfect example of that extreme. So they have balance issues. They have a lot more hamstring co-contraction than younger adults because it helps with that force accuracy at the knee. So their quads, they're, they're weak. They're kind of all over the place in terms of their force control. And so they want to not, not sway so much that they're going to fall over. So they'll increase their hamstring recruitment just to make the knee joint more rigid to help them with the control. So lots are good for that. And, but it gets to the point is if you're trying to use them um, on the way up, then it's just like, you know, using too much hamstrings, you are making the movement more efficient. So it's helping you have that solid foundation of control. But if you, 
use them as trying to like think like a primary mover. Like I think some people, they try to kind of flare their lots, like, you know, they're a bodybuilder on mm -hmm. stage and, you know, um, and they're Rest trying to do that. On there. Yeah. They're trying to do, yeah. do that and almost like kick their elbows in when they're, they're pressing, but that is a huge like equipped lifting technique. And so, um, yeah, over overrated muscle group for sure in terms of execution of the movement. If it's a force control and needing to stabilize, then that's where they come. They are important. Um, I know some people, um, and, and I'm on the fence about it because I used to do it myself. Um, and the bench was my my favorite lift. It was my best lift. And I found that when I did engage my, my lats on the way down, it was almost more like I got more tension in my, my chest. Um, and I had that control, but it was almost like once I let go of the lats, that's when it, it would shoot up off my chest. It, it kind of like almost stretching and that extra little bit of tension um, provided that little bit of a, the, the momentum and the reflex off the chest to, to help with the speed off the chest. But if you're trying to use it as a primary mover during the press, um, no. Um, or if you're using it so much that, like, for example, if I had weak chest muscles and I'm trying to use my lats on the way down to control it, then I'm making my chest have to work harder than it needs to. And then I'm wasting energy and I really need that, those pecs for everything they have on the way up. So then I've kind of set myself up for failure. And so a lot of lifters, like I know, like Jen Thompson, she, she doesn't take her time on the way down. Like she gets it down to her chest as quickly as possible, but practices the control so that she doesn't have to rely on her lats to do that. So that's a, another strategy to do it. So think about, you know, if you, you know, allow your, your triceps to help on the way down so that you're not taxing the chest so much, then that's the muscle you can rely on for a little bit more force control rigidity rather than, you know, the, 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 the lats so much, which are going to tax your and fatigue your chest. That's actually a really great point because I think that most high-level benchers, at least that I can think of um, and that I know personally, all bring the bar down pretty quickly. And uh, like I'm thinking of Julius Maddox, Yuri Belkin, uh, a friend of mine, John, who he, at least up until recently had the world record for bench, Jen Thompson. Yeah, so like and, – and even Kirill, like all, a, lot of, a lot of those guys who have just absolutely out-of-this-world bench presses um, – I'll bring the bar down quite quickly. And I don't know, I, I always like to tell people, cause I'm sure you have probably had this before with people like, do I, should I go slow? Should I go fast? And I'm always like speed. You should always go as fast as you can with the constraint being control. Yeah. Once you lose control, then that's where you stop and you got to dial it back a little bit. But I think you should go as fast as you can because then you're under load, you know, for the least amount of time, you'll have more energy. Um, but that ends up kind of being the thing where most people can't, can't really, can't really control at that level. Like moving the bar that quickly when there's that much weight is super hard. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it takes a long, long time to develop like the strength and the strength endurance to keep everything real rigid. Yeah. And so, and some people, they think that bringing it down quick means just like plopping relaxing, it down on your yeah. chest and relaxing the muscle where you need to like, if, if you have the muscle preactivated and, and you're keeping tension in it and not just letting it rest in your chest, it's able to produce force quicker whenever you're ready to, to press in the concentric phase. So it's like, I, I say to lifters, like, you know, 
they, they'll load their quads up so much on the way down that they're not even thinking about their glutes. And then by the time their glutes need to do all that work in the top half of the lift, they're, they're like, oh shit, now I got to recruit them. And it takes time, like, you know, even that like millisecond, like you, you need that time. And so if you have the glutes kind of pre-activated and some tension in them, they're more likely to contribute during the concentric up phase of the lift. So that's like a cue with lifters who, you know, they're having pelvic control or they're twerking out of the hole because they're not engaged in their glutes properly. I just tell them, you know, keep tension. If you have tension on the way down, they're more likely to contribute on the way up. And we see that actually with EMG studies as well. But yeah, it, it's, it's definitely about that control and like, don't waste the energy, but you need the tension and the control for that. Yeah. And that's a really great point as well that you mentioned about like the, the kind of pre-tensioning all the muscles, especially the glutes. Cause I think a lot of the times when people are squatting, they're thinking so much about their core and about their back and your quads naturally just tighten up on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, when you got a bunch of weight on your back, but, uh, but yeah, the hips, that's definitely one thing that I've noticed a lot of people don't do. And so I actually wanted to talk about two more things, um, with the squat before you end up moving to the deadlift. Mm -hmm. The first thing was um, the role of the calves in squatting, right? And preventing sway. Because a lot of the times I'll see lifters, when, when I first start working lifter, it's pretty common for me to see each rep looks just dramatically different. Mm -hmm. And the main culprit for me anyways that I see is their weight distribution over their foot. Like they just end up swaying so much. And so um, I just wanted to get your feedback on um, either direct calf training, or if you just maybe through some cueing, uh, like how you deal with that sort of stuff and kind of the role of the calves in general, I guess. Um, you can take it kind of like as a step-by-step -step and see if just cueing them does work, like thinking of getting them to kind of think about grabbing the floor a little bit more. Um, it, it just cues them to, you know, keep the weight on their, their midfoot. And we don't realize that the squat is a really balanced it's a balanced task you have this heavy load on the top of your back and you're swaying you're, you're swaying constantly even when you have nothing on your back so you've just immediately increased the gravitational torques and the primary muscle our first kind of line of defense in controlling our balance are our calves they control that center pressure on our foot um, so that's kind of like it could be like the first line of defense um, is you know you know cueing and just focusing you know weight on your midfoot and like if i know so many lifters that will start with their weight on their heels and then their body just naturally wants to go towards their midfoot because that is the like the the most stable point if you have it towards your heels you're in a you're towards a postural extreme and then what's your body going to do it's going to prioritize balance over movement efficiency and so it's going to recruit the hamstrings just prevent you from falling backwards. If you go towards your toes too much, your body's going to try and activate, you know, the muscles that pull your body backwards, like your erectors. So it, you want to be keeping on your midfoot. So you're not wasting energy with those postural adjustments, but also you can think about that during the squat, we get ankle plantar flexion. So even though we're not doing an actual calf raise, we are extending at our ankle. And so by using our calves to a certain extent and keeping the weight in our midfoot or even like a little bit towards the ball of our foot, we can use our calves to assist our quads in extending the knee. They're not like the primary, you know, you know they're not gonna make a huge PR in your squat, but if they can help the quads out a little bit, that then, you know, why not? It's, it's, not, um, uh, it's not inefficient. 
But if you're having problems with like falling forward, um, addressing the calves would probably be a good idea. Um, another thing would be, so with new lifters, they, so I have an example of this lifter that I actually assessed today and he is a super thin guy, um, super tall. Like you look at him, you're like, there's no way that guy it could ever be a powerlifter kind of, kind of deal. Uh, so like really thin, but he, he relies so much on his technique. So really, you know, um, new lifters with not a lot of muscle mass, they have to rely on technique. They're not like that, you know, grown up as a, a farm boy and they can rely on their like farm boy strength to, you know, do a bunch of, you know, just put all the, the loading on their back and you'll see like kind of the form break down like that. These, these smaller lifters that are just starting out, they have to have good technique. They can't rely on just grinding it up and relying on that strength. So it's like the farm boy guy, he, he had that strength. And so he got attracted to powerlifting because it's like, well, I'd probably be doing really good in this lift or really good in this sport where the, the, the other ones, because the sport's so much more popular or smaller, they don't have that, you know, base strengths. So technique is super, super important to them, but they'll have better technique than the, the other lifter because they have to have it so much. But at the same time, if they can't rely on any type of brute strength of like their back, then they'll use strategies like a momentum transfer. So think about when you see, again, I go back to older adults. If you see an older adults get up from a chair, they just don't stand upright. Um, they'll either kind of like lean forward and stand up like a good morning type off, off, up, off the chair, or they'll like swing and like we, we do it after a heavy squat day. Like you, everyone has done this off the chair where they <laughs> swing their torso up. And yeah. so that's a momentum. <laughs> yeah. I don't, not even like after squatting. It's just like in general, it's easier. Yeah. Powerlifting is all about, you know, conserving energy. A side note, I, I was working in this research hospital in Ottawa and we always took the stairs or no, like my, my, lab mates always took the stairs and I took the elevator all the time. They're like, you know, for the person that works out so much, you're kind of the laziest person I know. <laughs> I'm like, that's because I'm, I don't want to waste energy. Yeah. I got to save my energy for lifting. So, you know, we like, use, I'm always exhausted. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're, we use these strategies like swing yourself up. Um, I see this a lot in deadlifts where they kind of do like, I call it like a dolphin kick where they, you know, swing their shoulders forward and, and then go back. Um, but that's a momentum transfer. They're generating momentum by springing their, their, their body forward a little bit and then swinging it back. But whenever you do that, you're, you're, instead of your center mass being like this over your foot in stable, it goes forward and out. So in that instance of them trying to use momentum to help them get the lift, they, they're swaying so much that they're compromising their balance and they might actually end up falling forward towards their toes. So I see that a lot in lifters that, you know, they're even, you know, they're in competition and they're not used to being in like a big room and um, they, they like don't have, you know, their regular sensory input from having like a squat cage towards them and they're a little dizzy um, and they'll, they'll fall forward a little bit. So it could be like a postural thing with their calves. They just need to get stronger, but it's usually because they, are so used to being able to rely on this. You know, if I have the walls of the room is small, I'm able to tell how much I'm swaying. So they can tell 
how much they're swaying and they can get away with that momentum transfer strategy because they have that sensory input. But if they're in this big room in competition and they're not used to being in like an ER rock and they're used to being in a cage, there's no reference points anymore. So then they try to use that momentum transfer strategy, but their body doesn't have the sensory input. And then they end up falling over or almost falling over or like taking a step forward as a recovery because of that loss of balance. So calves, yes, they're, they are very important, but it, it's not going to be like that huge game changer. That's going to take you from like, you know, from a, a, a mediocre squat to a high level world competitive level. But if balance is the problem and the inconsistency is there, um, it may be because of the balance and them trying to swing themselves forward or them just not even knowing where to put the weight on their foot. And like people have told them, you know, keep your weight in your heels and sit back and your hamstrings. And then their body's like, no, I don't want to do that. And then they're trying to fight it. And that just ends up, you know, causing that inconsistency. I had a consult with a lifter who, you know, he, he was super inconsistent because he was thinking so much and he's like, I have to do this. I have to do it this way. And because of that, he was like kind of adjusting every single set. And I said, okay, stop doing it. Just do what your body naturally wants to do. And then he became more consistent. So um, overthinking it might also be a cause of that. So the second thing that I wanted to talk to you about or ask you about, sorry, was, uh, kind of the, the initiation of the squat. So I guess two things that for me drive me crazy are when people set up, they take all this time, they get a really good brace, their back is tight, everything looks awesome, and they drop. Like they relax and drop really quickly. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like you just <laughs> did all this work and now you just let it go. Kind of like what we were talking about before with the, the dropping the bench, right? And just kind of losing all stability and control. And, and part of that is usually accompanied with like an excessive anterior or not even necessarily excessive, but this like kind of popping of the hips, like where they, where they get this anterior pelvic tilt, right? Like the twerk out of the hole. Yeah. 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 No, 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 not, not out of the hole to initiate oh, just, the squat. Oh, okay, okay. Right. So they like yeah. pop their butt back, arch their low back a little bit and then drop down. Right. Mm-hmm. And so... Um. Yeah, that's like a recipe for disaster. But yeah, go on, go on. <laughs> no, 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 no. It seems like you kind of already know where I'm going. So, so go ahead. Um, so I, I like to think of it this way: it's like you have this heavy load on your back, and gravity—you're going with gravity down, and gravity's wanting to pull it down. And then all of a sudden, in the hole, like you don't want to sit there and pause it in the hole of the squat. All of a sudden, you are now producing leg drive to oppose what gravity wants to do so it's like if you don't have a rigid spine and you're like a a wet noodle it's like like it's just all that compression on your is going directly on your spine and then you add in an arched back and flared ribs so it's like i also see lifters they'll they'll be fine and then they go to take their big breath and they go (gasps) and then as soon as they take a big breath their ribs flare they go on an anterior pelvic tilt and they completely lose their ab engagement Um, it's almost like they're kind of sitting into their, their back, I guess. But if you don't have your core braced and then you're, you let loose and you're going on the way down, what is providing that rigidity of your spine when the bars wanting to accelerate down, you know, an object emotion wants to stay in motion until you apply a force to 
it. Um, and if we're applying it in the opposite direction, we're opposing what that heavy bar is wanting to go downwards. So it's like your spine is going this way on one end and then the bottom of your spine is going this way on the other end. And so that's where I was just like, oh, like recipe for disaster. And the best cue I can kind of demonstrate it is if you get someone to like arch their back and then someone to come up behind them and push down on the shoulders very rapidly, they're going to go, ow, because their, their spine basically like goes like this. Yeah. like a coat hanger and versus if you go ah, like your, your brace and your ribs are stacked and then they come push down and you know nothing happens you're rigid versus the arch they go and they, they get that kind of flexion so with that it's it's you know you're you're not bracing in that instant that's the the hardest part of the lift where you're posing gravity you're starting to start going up in the concentric phase but then you're not pre-activating the muscle and like i said if the muscle has tension on the way down it's more likely to contribute on the way up so then that where you're really wanting that quick transition your your nervous system needs time to recruit those muscles fully right like you just don't recruit a muscle like that fully um inst instantaneously it needs time to ramp up that contraction so you you're losing it that way and then if you don't have for example your glutes engaged then you're not bracing your, your pelvis at all. And so it's like you have that lag delay, um, but then you start, you know, you're not bracing with your pelvis properly with your glutes. And what do you do instead? You start relying on your erectors and your hip flexors to control your pelvis. And then it's just like this chain reaction of compensation and the lifter ends up, you know, hurting their back. So it, it's like, <laughs> I feel like we're contradicting ourselves like bench press, go quick, but squat don't, but at least like the bench press has that, that pause time that you can wrap it, ramp it up. You're, and you're not having this like external load on your back that you're going to hurt yourself. So it's, yes, you want to take your, you want to not like sit and down like you're an equipped lifter trying to reach for for depth or anything like that because you're going to waste energy but you need all of those muscles um, contracted especially your core to to brace at that instant where you know you are resisting gravity it's just like this quick switch and you're if you're not rigid you're gonna you know strain those ligaments of your spine and i see lifters get like whiplash injuries basically with the anterior ligaments of their spine because they just were wet noodles in the hole Moving on to the deadlift, um, I think we'll just stick with a conventional deadlift okay. uh, for for the most part, and we'll, we'll kind of see where we get to. So what are some of the main issues that you see in um, the deadlift? Like for me, one of the biggest things that I see is not setting up properly. Like a lot of the times when I see a lifter miss at the top or miss in the middle or miss anywhere, it's usually because they messed up the start position. They can't, they can't wedge into position. So do you have any... I guess, tips or strategies to help someone learn how to wedge themselves into the bar and like force the bar around them. So you mean uh, like just like generate, generating like a little bit more, like pulling the slack out of the bar and generating some impulse. So with the deadlift, again, it's that sliding scale. So I say like 99% of the time, what your weakest link is in the squat, it's also going to be that the deadlift, but it's going to manifest a little differently because of the non-simultaneous nature of the lift. And when I say non-simultaneous, it's like squat coming out of the hole. You really want your knees and your hips to extend, start extending at the same time at the, in the same amount. Where with the deadlift, you want to be producing leg drive off the floor with your quads uh, and creating tension in your quads where your glutes and your rectors are stabilizing until that bar passes the knee. So it's almost like a knees before hips. 
And when you do that um, and you, you think about, you know, you bring the bar, you go down to the bar and then you're using your quads to bring that lower leg back so that you're moving your knees out of the way of the bar rather than the bar around your knees. As soon as you try to like squat the bar up and make it simultaneous, then you have to move that bar around your knees. It has to travel forward. And then what have you done? You've just made things more inefficient because now you have to produce, you know, waste more energy to get that bar back towards you. So whenever it comes to start position, um, I, it can usually because they aren't able to produce sufficient knee extensor torque and that leg drive using their quads off the floor. Um, so they'll, you know, their hips will come up quicker because they, you know, need to transfer loading from the knee to the hip or their back will round because, you know, maybe even the hips, the glutes can't do their job properly. And you get like a little bit of a bum tuck and you're trying to transfer loading to the back. Um, so you want to get slack out of the bar, but you don't want to do it where like, I, I don't know how many lifters I see when they try to get slack out of the bar, they, they bring their shoulders back to do it. <laughs> Is right? it behind the bar you mean? Yeah. And so yeah. that's when they try to basically squat the bar up when, you know, that's not the lift. So with the, getting the slack out of the bar, it's about thinking about, I guess, pushing the world down, right? And I always talk about ground reaction forces. So every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It's the, the laws like Newton's laws. So when you push down on the ground, the world's going to push back at you of equal magnitude, but in the opposite direction, right? So if you push down directly down the ground, the world's going to push back directly upwards. So you want to make sure that you're producing large amounts of leg drive downwards to the ground. So you have those reaction forces coming up to, to, to move the bar. And so with that, you need to be using the quads, the quads and leg, the knee extensors are what's going to produce those vertical ground reaction forces. You can think of it this way where like, if you try to do a vertical jump with just your hips, you'd probably end up jumping forward. And you might notice with like Olympic weightlifting, if you don't have, you know, sufficient knee extension and you rely on really bringing your hips through, you end up like jumping forward or swinging the bar, right? Where if you really use your quads, you can get a really nice vertical upright jump. So if you only jumped with your quads, you're going to jump straight up. If you only jumped with your hips, you're going to jump forward basically. So the glutes are really important, you know, extending the torso, but they don't produce that vertical ground reaction force that you need. And you can only achieve with the quads and that tension and that, that drive that you're using, that's, what's going to get the slack out of the bar, right? It's, it's not going to be that driving the shoulders back. It's not going to bring in your hips towards the bar because if you do that, then your back's going to round and you're putting yourself in a really bad position for the top half of the lift. It's about, pushing the world down. And whenever you think about that, instead of just like thinking about extending your knee or putting, you know, squeezing your quads, that's what I found was like one of the number one cues in helping a lifter get that, that slack out and really start ramping up the contraction. And so you're thinking about you, you build, 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 and build. And then once that bar passes the knee, that's when the hips snap through to extend the torso. So it's all about that, that quad off the floor and they're building and building and building up that momentum so that the top half of the lift is that explosive hip extension. So that's a really great explanation actually. So when, when it was explained to me, one of my training partners, a uh, really, really strong dude, pulls over like 800 pounds. Um, 
he was helping me with my wedge because I, I had like FAI in my right hip. And so okay. certain positions are a little weird. It makes it a little difficult. And the way that I was trying to wedge just wasn't super effective. And, and one of the things that he said was exactly what you said. Um, he's like, instead of thinking about trying to pull on the bar and get in a position that way, he's like, focus on grabbing the bar, set your back, and then push like crazy into the ground as you get your hips into position. And honestly, like ever since I started doing that, the bar actually lifts off the ground, like up <laughs> until I think trying. like, yeah, up until like 500 pounds or something. Like, I think I have to have like five plates on it for it to actually like, for one of the plates to be touching. Because wow. like, and it's not, it's not even like I'm initiating the lift. It's just like I wedge into position. And then just because of the amount of tension you're able to build up and exactly like you said, it's, it's pushing into the ground like I don't know why for me it was just like a light bulb and so I just kind of wanted to yell it to everyone but then whenever I try and explain it it never comes out well I'm just like all right I need to figure this out so I'm just gonna like cut this <laughs> clip <physics> of it. <laughs> yeah it's like I'm gonna cut this clip and just always be sending it to all to all my athletes and, and anyone who's, uh, who's on my Instagram or something like that yeah and for you you it's from the sounds of it you have the quad strength to be able to do that so it just all you needed to do is just be cute where Another lifter, maybe they don't have the strength to be able to do it. So that means they need to do movements like, um, well, like if they do front squats and stuff in their squat, it will transfer to the deadlift to a certain extent. But I really love deficit deadlifts for lifters and force them to push their knees forward more and their hips lower and like have the same torso angle as if they weren't in a deficit. And they, they're like, oh my God, that was so hard. And I'm like, exactly. Because that means that you're, you're hitting that, that weaker muscle group and you're providing the mechanical disadvantage. If you go and do an accessory movement and it's really easy, then you're probably doing the wrong one. If you're doing accessory movement and you hate it, you're probably doing the right one. But the, the leg drive, it's, it was a game changer for a couple of my clients. And it really helped also with, so they were trying to get the slack out of the bar by bringing their shoulders back, but they were flaring and arching their back as well. And so they're thinking, oh, that's, that's fine. Like it's better to have an arched back than a rounded back. And it's like, well, no, not necessarily as well, because yeah, you're not rounded and you're not putting all the, if you're rounded, you're putting all the strain on the, the posterior, the back, the towards your back tendons and, and tissue. But if you're arched, you're putting all the stress on these tissues in the front of the spine. So like your anterior longitudinal ligament of the spine, and then you have this barbell in your hands wanting to go this way. You're basically just, you know, your back wants to hyperextend. And so you're, you're really relying on shortening those erectors to get like the shoulders back and the slack out of the bar, but you're putting your spine in a, in a bad position and you have like no ab engagement at all. No ab engagement. You lose your, 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 your pelvic control, you lose your pelvic control, you lose your glutes. So it's like this downward spiral of, okay, just think about leg pushing down and then your body will naturally brace your torso. It's like, you don't have to think about, you know, arching and getting it tight if you push down then you can just say okay rectors all you have to do is stabilize you're not a primary mover you shouldn't be a primary mover you should just be a stabilizer and then your quads do that job once that bar passes the knee hip snap through and you're using your glutes like a, a hip thrust basically at the top half of the lift so you're making it way more non-simultaneous and you're keep as a result, you're keeping that bar really nice and close to your body and towards your center of mass without having to like move it around your knees. Okay, so you were saying the deficit pulls for someone who has weaker quads, um, and that's going to be the biggest issue, at least at the bottom half of the pull where it is a little bit more leg drive, and then for the top half of the lift where it is a little bit more hip extensor dominant, 
Um, what would you recommend there? I mean, I know you said good more or some good mornings um, with partial ranges. And do you have any other exercises you particularly like? I think uh, barbell hip thrusts are a really undervalued exercise for powerlifters. So I, I do recommend them. Um, and basically anything that emulates the the hip thrust, but you're in a vertical position. So like you said, you know, you want to be more movement specific when you get closer and closer to competition. Um, so you'd switch from like a hip thrust to uh, a block pull. But the same thing, if you're a lifter that with really strong quads and you go and do a block pull, your body's probably going to want to just try and squat it up with your quads. So you need to make sure that you're pushing your hips back and getting comfortable with that, you know, a little bit more lean forward position. So like you can compare what your position is at your knee um, during your regular lift, regular lift, and then compare it to your start position in the, the block pull. And if you see that you're more upright in the block pull, then you're not, you're wasting your energy basically, because you're just training your quads. And the whole point of the exercise is to train your hips. So with that, it's that, you know, block pull, good mornings. I really like Romanian deadlifts. Um, sometimes I even get lifters to combine a Romanian deadlift with a block pull if they're having hip hinge problems and keeping that neutral spine, they need a little bit more challenge on the way down. Um, that's really good. But, you know, if you're not peaking, do your hip thrusts, like do your booty builder Instagram model type exercises. <laughs> yeah. They work, you know, lift heavy, hit those glutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I just kind of want to reiterate what, uh, what you said a moment ago about like even a corrective or prescriptive exercise, unless you're actually executing it properly, it's just not going to do anything for you. And so one of the ways that um, I'll usually communicate that with my athletes as well is I'll be like, okay, your core lifts are there to build up your core lifts. But once you start doing accessories and stuff like that, or your auxiliary lifts, it's like, now we're trying to train the muscle over mm -hmm. here. This is for strength. This is for muscle yep. focus on like bodybuilding, get the pump, feel the muscle. Even if it is like a block pull, which generally you're doing pretty heavy. If you're doing them right, like you should feel your ass. Yeah. I, I, like I've, I've always, I've always kind of felt that anytime I'll do something, I'm like, Oh, yep. I feel that weak ass muscle is, <laughs> is, is definitely working now, whether it's triceps, pecs, whatever, if, if you're doing that. And so that's kind of the way that I've always thought about it. And it's kind of helped me, um, I guess, just stay a little bit more level headed in terms of like when I'm selecting load and stuff like that for, mm -hmm. for a movement, because like you said, it's really easy to, to start doing some block pulls and be like, oh man, I'm awesome at this and just throw on a, a ton of weight but then it's like, okay, well, you're kind of missing the point because now you're having to, to get into an advantageous position where your quads are a little bit more involved to kind of squat or stand the weight up. Um, yeah. So it's like with you know. the, the lighter one, you're just using your glutes versus with the heavier one, you're using your glutes and your quads, but then you're, you're burning out because you're just using your quads so much in your competition main lift. Like why not be a little bit more efficient in terms of how you're executing it? And I say like, think of it this way with a lunge, you can do a lunge, and based on how you execute it, you can target a completely different muscle group. If you're upright and you push your knee forward, you're using your quads. If you're lean forward in the lunge and you push your hips back and hip hinge back, you're hitting your glutes. So it's not even just saying like if for coaches out there, you know, don't just say, you know, do a lunge, you know, tell them how they're supposed to be doing it, whether it's upright and, you know, cue them on what muscle group and the purpose of this exercise. Like don't just throw an exercise in there and assume they know, or don't just throw an exercise in there and be like, well, we need to do some single leg work. It's like, well, what, what is, have some sort of purpose be, behind like why you're choosing those exercises and, you know, making sure that you, 
the lifters getting their, their biggest bang for their buck out of them so that they're actually transferring over and helping their competition lift. Yeah, that's a great point, especially because any sort of like compensatory movement pattern or something like that is, is probably still going to be expressed in, in the auxiliary movements as well, mm-hmm. right? Like someone who's got weak quads, I mean, like you were saying, right? Like you were doing lunges and your hips were real strong. So you're kind of pushing your hips back and utilizing, you know, a strategy that you're like, well, I'm doing a lunge. And it's like, well, technically yeah. it's a lunge. But like you said, two completely different activities and two completely different outcomes. So yeah. um, so we're almost coming up on the 90-minute mark, actually. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, but I always like to ask, you know, everyone this one question. What's one opinion you have that sort of goes against grain, maybe isn't necessarily like really supported by, by the research at this point, but it's something that you've observed and you feel like pretty confident enough to say, you know what, this is something that I believe in, even if there isn't necessarily tons of evidence to support it. <laughs> Whenever you, f- you phrase the first part of the question, it's like my mind goes to hamstrings, but the thing is that the, the <laughs> research actually supports. <laughs> yeah, popular, research supports. Pili- popular opinion doesn't, but research does, yeah. Yeah, so I, I won't, we've already talked about the hamstrings. Um, so the other tool that I use in my lifters is uh, myofascial release. Um, and even when I say myofascial release, like I kind of cringe because it's even like when I, when I used, I used to hate using the word core because basically the, the term was made up by marketing, like, right? Yeah. There. Like, what does the core really mean? It's like, well, it's your abs. It's like, well, no, it's, it's more than that. It's like your pelvic stabilizers, your, you know, even your shoulder girdle you can consider. So yeah, it's like 45 with, to 60% of your body. Yeah. But you, <laughs> <laughs> but you use it because people understand what you mean, right? When yeah. you say your core exercises. So myofascial release, I use it, you know, the term, and, because people understand what I'm talking about, that, that form of manual therapy. Um, some people I know, they're just so anti against that name that they just say like manual therapy and I'm like, well, we'll do them out. We'll just use myofascial release. But the, <laughs> I, I say it's, it's not the right term because you're not really releasing the, the fascia. And this is for anyone who's actually had the opportunity to, um, you know, do cadaver anatomy and feel this, what the tissues really like you, you get a respect for, you know, it's supposed to be tight. It's, it's protecting things. There's a reason why it's tight. Um, and it's, it's thick, like you, you touch it and you're like, there's no way in hell a foam roller or this ball is going to do anything to this stuff. Like you, you're rolling out your IT band and you actually think that like people think that they're, they're kneading the dough with it. And the, the research isn't quite there yet. Um, we, we know now that it's not a physical manual, like kind of kneading the dough. It is a neurological relaxation effect. So when you, you dig a ball in or you're doing grass and technique and well, I guess grass, and if someone actually knows what they're doing, they might actually be able to break up stuff. But like, say you're, you're foam rolling in, in your warm up, and then, or you're taking a ball, a cross ball, and you're digging it in. Everyone thinks that, okay, I got this, I feel more mobile now. And I got this range of motion because I loosened up that fascia. And it's like, no, no. What you're actually doing is you're, you're digging the muscle in, you're desensitizing these sensory receptors in the muscle that want to have it in a more contracted hypertonic state, those muscle spindles. So they, they relax, they become less sensitive and that's, they release that tonic, that, that control in the muscle to want to have it more tight. So that's how we, we get that reduced tension neurologically. And that's how we get the increased range of motion. And 
With my lifters, especially ones with problems engaging their glutes, um, the research isn't quite there on, you know, and I, and I, tr I've, I taught this neuroscience class and it's really when I had my aha moment because what we know from the science is that whenever you uh, increase the recruitment signal to a muscle, those sensory receptors become more sensitive. So with that moment, I was like, okay, holy shit. Well, if you do this myofascial release in the beginning, yes, you're getting that neurologic relaxation effect, but as soon as you get to your top set, the, those sensory receptors just became more sensitive. So the benefits of that myofascial release by the time you get to your top set, theoretically, it could be completely washed out. And, and we see this a lot because like, you know, whenever I have a lifter with knee pain, I get them to release their hamstrings and we get tension out of it. And they're like, oh, the pain's gone. But then they get to their top set and they're like, oh, that pain's back. Or um, another thing that I'm not, I say uh, my best educated guess is it has to do with something with reciprocal inhibition when lifters can't engage their glutes um, because they have too much tension in their ductor magnus, their inner thigh. Um, so by what we see is when I get them to release it, they stand up and they're like, holy shit, this is the first time I can feel my glutes really. And they like, I feel lighter. And, but by the time they get their top set, you know, that the, their ability to engage their glutes is lost. And so what I'm theorizing is that this neurological relaxation happens and they can feel their glutes. And then you, you, you start lifting heavier. The glutes are fatiguing. We start recruiting that adductor magnus more to help out because it's a synergist tension gets put back into it because those sensory receptors become sensitive again. And then what happens with reciprocal inhibition is that it's a spinal reflex where an opposing muscle group to a really tense muscle will be inhibited. So with the adductor magnus, even though it's a hip extensor, it's also a knee adductor or thigh adductor and an internal rotator. So if it's inhibiting the antagonist opposing muscle, that would be your thigh abductors and external rotators, which are your glutes and your glute need, right? So what I, what I'm, what has really helped with my lifters that come to me with knee valgus and they want to work on their knee valgus or they're having problems bracing and they wanting, they're having problems using their glutes. We do this myofascial release. They, they feel their glutes better, but I actually get them to do it in between their work sets. And so I use it as a very different tool than everyone else. Um, I use it as a tool to get tension out of synergists or muscles that we don't want to have tension in either because we're using them too much and we want to kind of knock them out and get the right muscle using, doing the job. Or if it's causing this inhibition of the glutes, we're using it that way to get the, the, the activation and get them engaged better. So, there's actually no research studies on it. It's really hard to test for um, inhibition of the glutes because um, basically you have to like, you know, stick a needle in somewhere and, you know, it, it's difficult to get that nerve, but it's my best educated guess. It's been working with my lifters. I am fully open that like maybe it's something completely different, but it's working. And it's, it's helping a lot of my lifters with their knee pain, with their back pain, because they're engaging glutes better. They're, they're not having to use their quads so much. So if it's working, I'm, I'm going to use it with them, regardless of if the research isn't up 
to where I'm at with it and I'm ahead of it. And that's where, you know, practical experience is extremely valuable, hands on time. And that's why, you know, I was so happy to get out of the lab. Like I was a, you know, lab monkey for so many years and I was losing touch with my, my lifters, but luckily I was still lifting and I'd be, you know, experimenting on myself and I'd be experimenting on my training partners. And then eventually I just got to this point where I was like, I prefer to be working with the people hands-on and I'm, I'm not inspired by this research anymore. If I was, I'd be there trying to figure this stuff out myself. But unfortunately, I don't have my, my own lab and I don't have someone that wants to do what I want to do as a, for a supervisor. So um, I'm basing it off of what's working with my lifters. If someone proves me wrong and that it's you know another you know, mechanism that's helping, I will fully admit that I was wrong and that I and I'll, and I'll support it. So it's like, this is my best interpretation of what's going on and why it helps. But I'm really excited for, you know, maybe someone that wants to take it on and actually, you know, look at what, you know, this, these reflexes and this myofascial release actually does to, you know, the, these muscles during actual multi-joint movements and how it translates to them. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting strategy, like utilizing SMR in between sets um, just to help kind of maintain that that balance um, between the muscles. And like, awesome. I, have no, I have no idea if it actually like, I like, I simplify it and say it's like knocking out a muscle, knocking out the hamstrings, the adductor magnus and forcing the yeah. glutes to do their job. It's like, I'm not sure if that's actually happening, but it, it seems to be happening and it's, it's yeah. translating and it's actually manifesting in their squat whenever they are very consistent with it and they apply it. So I'm like, all right, this is my best educated guess of what's yeah. going on. Yeah. Well, it's one of those answers. It's like, it's, it's good enough. You know I mean? Like if, 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 well, it is. And I mean, a lot of the times, like I'll, I'll talk about something and someone's like, where's your, where's your PubMed link? And I'm like, dude, it's not really how this works. Like, you know, like high level athletes are always going to be, out of research for a number of reasons. One of them just being like practical limitations. Like you can't study everything all the time. No, you know? and everything and so, is limited by like you're in this constrained environment of a lab and no one yeah. performs like they do in real life. And no. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like it, if something's like producing a very consistent, reliable result, whether it's because of reciprocal inhibition or like unicorns, yeah. I don't know that it matters that much, you know, to, to the athlete. Like it does for the scientific community for sure, which eventually mm -hmm. will trickle down to the athletes in the future. But, you know, so I say good enough. <laughs> and there's, there's so many things where like now with the research, they're like, oh man, the gym bros were right. Like, damn. Yeah. And so yeah. it's like, yeah, like that practical experience, um, you know, the it, it's like you, people get so invested in, something like if they're like, I am science-based and they, or they're like, I yeah. am evidence-based and they are like, well, the science doesn't say that it's there. The research doesn't say it's like, well, evidence-based practice is about practical hands-on knowledge as well as the scientific research. So if you really want to be mm -hmm. truly scientific evidence-based coach or, or trainer, then you need to be taking the, the hands-on stuff and the, the research that is available out there. We are limited in what we have in terms of our current state of knowledge. It's like, back in the day, the research said, don't squat deep, it's bad for your knees. But now we know completely different and we kibosh that. And maybe there are people out there that still rely on that old school and they haven't updated and because they're so invested in it that now they're like, oh no, the research says something different. Nope, 
I don't believe in it. I don't believe in it. Yeah. So uh, yeah. there, there's two sides of it with, you know, other people take it or they say, oh, well, research studies are flawed and I don't follow any of the research studies. I only use hands-on experience. So it's, you have to use both. Yeah. If with the myofascial release stuff, it's going back to your basic like neuroscience textbook. Like this stuff is in textbooks. And it just took kind of me teaching someone else to kind of like get it in my head and processing to be like, oh, like this is what's going on. Okay, yeah. now I need someone else to go do the research for me because I'm not in that position to do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it was one of those things like I actually wrote a post about this years ago when I'm not sure if you're familiar with who Phil Heath is. Yeah. He, yeah, so I remember he came out and said he likes to eat fish close to his contest prep because it thins the skin. I, I think it was mm -hmm. Phil Heath anyways. Mm -hmm. And uh, everyone was like, oh, pff, you're such an idiot. You don't know anything. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. You're telling me that Phil Heath, the most <laughs> jacked guy in like history, doesn't mm -hmm. know anything about building muscle? It's like, okay, sure. Maybe he's wrong about the fish, but his observation is correct, just not for mm -hmm. the reason that he's giving you. Yeah. And so I think at that point, it's like, who, who cares, you know? Um, but anyways, I, I think we've kind of chatted long, uh, uh, long enough. I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, where can the listeners find you? Um, so if you want to look at my posts, I do um, have an Instagram page that you can follow. And I talk about this stuff in all my posts. Um, it is my, my username is Megan, M-E-G-A-N dot Kinetic Advantage. Um, for my website, you can visit kineticadvantage.ca. Awesome. So all that stuff is going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. So definitely check her out. Give her a follow. She's got a lot of great stuff. Um, do you have any other courses that you've been putting on? Um, so I, my, my flagship one is the powerlifting biomechanics and assessment. Um, so that is kinetic advantage learning. So that's kind of like the, my side project that I started the summer. I thought I was not going to have a lot of business because of COVID. And then I proved myself wrong and it was a super busy summer. Um, so I have, that was my first one. I also have um, powerliftings for masters athletes. So it's just talking about the aging process and how we can um, you know, use different strategies for, with masters athletes based on that. Um, I do have a free one that's still available right now, powerlifting for special populations. If you're interested in working with Paralympic athletes or a special Olympics, it is free. Um, it won't be on much longer um, because eventually I'm, it's my, my goal is January. I'm going to be coming out with kind of the part two for the powerlifting biomechanics and assessment. It's going to be focusing on just basically accessory movements, it's going to be how to execute them, how to make sure that you're doing them properly. Basically everything that we discussed about this and, you know, the, the main lifts are extremely important, but how we're executing the accessory ones are also important. So we, the assessment, the powerlifting biomechanics assessment, we determine what our, our weaknesses are. And now the part two is about making sure that we're addressing those weaknesses and how we can monitor that in our training. Awesome. So any of you guys, like I said earlier, if any of you guys are interested in learning a little bit more about uh, biomechanics and how it's going to impact your training or potentially your client's training, I definitely recommend checking out her course. It's a really, really great program. Very simplistic, very straightforward, lots of practical information and advice you guys can take home. So hopefully you guys will check that out. Megan, thank you so much. It was really awesome chatting with you today. I appreciate you coming on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you. Please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. 
When you do this, it helps me get better at producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high quality information for you guys. Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at Stacked Strength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly, so make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.